Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. Today on the show, we have an action-packed hour, chock a block, full of some incredibly bright people. First up, we'll be chatting with Dr. Tanya Penovic, who is a senior lecturer in the Faculty of Law at Monash University and the research group leader in gender and sexuality for the Caston Center of Caston Center for Human Rights Law. Did I say that right, Tanya? Caston Center. Yeah. Tanya has published numerous book chapters and articles on access to justice, women's human rights, constitutional law, and the rights of asylum seekers and refugees. Her research has been cited by the Supreme Court of Australia as well as the High Court and relied upon in submissions to international courts, including the European Court of Human Rights. Tanya has provided numerous submissions to state, federal and international inquiries into law reform and human rights, which have been cited in federal and state parliaments and reports uh, to the UN Human Rights Council. This morning, we'll be asking her just what the dickens is going on with the US Supreme Court and the future of Roe versus Wade. Next up, we'll be chatting with Associate Professor Dr. Spock. Every doctor with a child knows Spock because at some point we've all caught him frantic with panic and his sage, calm advice has just made everything better. He is an expert uh, paediatrician in emergency medicine, general medicine and infectious diseases, the sort of doctor you just you want to take camping with you. Spock has spent a lot of time uh, with Indigenous communities and today he'll be telling us about some of his experiences. Dr. Flexible is an old friend and a highly respected paediatrician and medical educator. Her areas of expertise include complex medical and genetic conditions, continence and toileting problems, allergy, asthma, eczema, as well as chronic headache and migraine in kids. Uh, Flexible also deals with unsettled babies, feeding and growth and obesity issues, as well as having extensive experience helping kids with developmental delay, learning difficulties, autism and ADHD. Today on the show, Flexible will be searching for our attention. Oh, where's it gone? Where's it gone? EpiPen. Where did it go? Has it been lost or stolen? To steal uh, a phrase from uh, Johan Hari's new book. And how do we help our kids find their attention? Pitching questions to our experts will be me, Dr. Mal, along with my co-hosts, Dr. G-Spot and nurse EpiPen. Who needs to go to conferences in exotic locations when you've got the radiotherapy team for all your continuing medical education needs? So stick with us for the next hour. Good morning, nurse EpiPen. Good morning, team and everybody that's listening in on this sort of... It was a little bit grey out there. Wasn't and it? I couldn't ride my bike in because I've, I've got a sore foot. You're on a scooter. You're being uber cool. Yeah, but last week, yeah. Dr. Nurse was on. Yeah. And he's had a pretty mushed up ankle. Yeah. And I was very sympathetic because I've had an ankle fusion. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I've, there's, I've got to catch up with Dr. Nurse. Ankle fusion. What, what do they do? They put two bones oh, together and glue? Put, yeah, and plates and pins and mm. I can just wiggle my toes but I can't really roll my ankle, move my ankle too much. Now, does that mean, if you've got plates and stuff, does that mean when you go through the metal detector at the airport? I've you, checked that. What happens? No. <laughs> what do you mean no? No well, what? I think I'd go up a little bit but, <laughs> but I can, uh, maybe I'll have to carry my x-rays around with me. I reckon you might or a photo of your x-rays. yeah. Just in case. Just in case. I yeah. always carry a photo of my x-rays just to impress people. Do you? Yeah. Yeah, but you're a bit neurotic. That's, well, let's, don't tell the entire <laughs> listening audience that. I just like my x-rays. Let's shift attention to Dr. G-Spot. Good hey. morning, everyone. From someone who's a bit neurotic to someone who's a lot neurotic, how's everyone going? We're forming a team oh, here. Can you, can, you, can you say that? <laughs> hey, how's your work week been? Is lots happening? Oh, as always, Dr. Malpractice and Nurse EpiPen, but I completed my emerging leadership course at Monash recently, and they said that my totalitarian dictatorship style is spot on, <laughs> so I'm not going to change a thing, and I can't wait to. I'm feeling very optimistic for the future of research today. So you've emerged as a leader. I have. I have. I, so just a, like a low-key leader to now an emerging leader. So tell us seriously, like, can you give us any points to be a leader? Because I, I mean, I've been to so many leadership seminars and my kids have been 
There's so many leadership. I'm, are there any followers left? Is the question <laughs> in, my, in Indians. my mind? Like, is any, who's going to follow? Um, tell me, what's the key to being a leader? I think what I learned was sort of um, you uh, give the style of leadership that you want to receive. So I think managing up and managing down, I think sometimes we forget about looking in both directions. And so what sort of leadership do you like to receive then? (laughs) I think encouraging and supportive, (laughs) and that's what I try to give. Oh, that sounds fantastic. Well, I've learned something this morning. Um, We've got such an action-packed show that normally we'd be bringing you the... I think for... Uh, for the Zoom, um, the Zoom, we need to put Gemma's a bit. Oh, Doctor G Spot's a bit soft. Is she? So we need to put her volume up. Oh right. Sorry, I'm getting directions. Yeah, we're from, getting faces. I, I, I often, I often say that you know, yeah. panelling at yeah. Three Triple R is like <laughs> flying a seven four seven, and I'm just terrified I'm going to push the wrong button. Um, hey, G Spot, say hello. Hello, everyone out there. Are we better? Yep, I think I think yeah, we're better. Yeah. Um, Terrific. So normally we would have the latest from the medical journals. We'd be talking catch up. We'd be bringing you the you know the latest from the New England Journal of Medicine. You know, da, 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 da. but we've got so many great guests this morning that we don't have time to bring you the medical news. I've got to say, first up, we have got a fantastic guest, which you, uh, Nurse EpiPen, have been so keen to introduce. And why don't we just get straight into it now? Just straight in. Straight in. Okay. Straight in. Okay. So, Doctor. Tanya Panovic, who's soon to be an associate professor with so she's going to be uh, elevated in her academic career. Um, I just thought we'd start by thanking you so much for coming onto the radio show this morning. And I just was going to pick some of the things out of your bio and just I read with interest how you've taught and are interested in international and domestic human rights law, including women's rights. And I, and also Rob said it, but how's this, that she's been cited by the High Court of Australia and the Supreme Court of Australia, and she looks as young as a button. <laughs> a button. Is that an expression even? Well, I've made it up, made it up. Um, and but before we talk about this fascinating and terribly interesting um, Roe v. Wade versus Wade, I think that's the better way to say it. Criminal case, Tanya, can you tell us how the Dickens you got into law and how you have um, what's happened with your choices in this specialised legal pathway? Okay, well, uh, I mean, I suppose a lot of us do law, not knowing what we're going to wind up doing. Uh, but um, I've had a, a long-standing interest in human rights, and so I was lucky enough to to find um, a community of, of scholars to work with in that area and um, to, to undertake a postgraduate study in that area. Um, so, so I have a broad interest in the human rights of, of vulnerable um, people. Um, so. Um, uh, asylum seekers and refugees, um, Indigenous rights. I'm very excited about the voice to parliament um, becoming a reality in the next uh, three years and, of course, the, the rights of women. And, and um, when you mentioned the, um, the High Court and the Supreme Court work, that actually is work that, that is relevant to what we're going to talk about. It's relevant to abortion access because... Uh, I've done research with a colleague, Ronley Cyprus. Shout out to Ronley Cyprus, who um, uh, worked with me on um, anti-abortion picketing of clinics and um, the impact that that had on um, women and uh, staff working at clinics and others, and uh, the impact of laws designed to to uh, limit that conduct. So um, that research was. Um, cited by the High Court and the Supreme Court and it was really gratifying to be able to inform the judicial process um, with research showing the harm that such conduct caused. Why don't we talk about Roe versus Wade? Sure, sure. So so the, the case, I think um, a lot of people would be aware, is... is um, a decision of the US Supreme Court from 1973 and the court basically um, found that the right to choose 
to have an abortion or not was constitutionally protected within the ambit of the right to privacy. So what this meant was that states could not impose outright bans on abortion. They, they could impose some limits, um, more limits in the third trimester, in the second trimester, limits that are consistent with uh, the, the, the health and rights of the woman. Uh, so this is, this is a, um, a judgment that has protected constitutionally the right to choose for five decades. There have been, a, there've been attempts to chip away at it, but it looks like now in the Dobbs case... Um, it will finally be overturned. So um, it looks like it. We don't know for sure yet, but the, the leaked draft majority of opinion of the Supreme Court uh, certainly uh, is unlikely to change dramatically and um, it is an overturning of Roe v Wade. So hugely significant and very, very concerning um, development in the US. So um, would you like me to talk about, you know, what yeah, this is going to mean? Yeah. Or, or the specific case. Yeah. So yeah. Jane Rowe, her pseudonym, and how she was pregnant with her third child mm-hmm. and wanted a, a, an abortion. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well Jane... Um, Jane Rowe, as she... Oh, as her, Jane Rowe. <laughs> as her, her pseudonym um, was, was was actually, she was the named plaintiff in what was a class action. So it was a class action on behalf of other women in her situation. So it was, it was a challenging of the Texas law that prevented her from being able to access an abortion. Um, so, you know, she was the person who, um, you know, there was going to be a person <laughs> chosen to challenge uh, that law and it turned out to be her. But um, but so, uh, what did you want me? She, so she wound up she wound up having um, taking her pregnancy to term. Yes. Um, yes. Yeah. Oh, really? I didn't know yes. that. Yes. So, yes. so yes. why was that? Because the law hadn't changed by the time she mm. wanted to have the abortion. Yeah, it was too yes. late. Oh, yes. really? yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. And did yeah. she did she come out publicly afterwards and? And have a pres- a public presence. Or? She did. She did have a public presence, uh, and there's a documentary about this, yeah. which I haven't seen. But um, she was co-opted by the Christian right, um, and and oh, actually paid. It emerges, um, and and this only emerged later. And she renounced her um, pro-choice views and um, uh, basically uh, claimed to regret. That position and be opposed to abortion. Really? Yeah, Jeez, yeah. Which, which you can imagine was gold for the um, the anti-choice movement. Yeah, but yeah. It, it emerged um, on her death <laughs> that um, that that she'd been manipulated right. and um, and bought. Yes, and yeah. the, the the rape that she claimed was a lie. Mm. But I found a really interesting thing on her obituary mm. <clears throat> that says, um, so as she died in 1994, mm. I don't require that much in my life. I just never had the privilege to go into an abortion clinic, lay down and have an abortion. That's the only thing I never had but everything else. So in a way that's sort of, um, mm. you know, her... What happened to her? Mm. Can I ask a, a question, Tanya? I mean, we were chatting a bit about it outside in the in the green room, mm. which is kind of more grey, oh, grey green, about the the points of law with um, the right to access for an abortion. And mm. I've I've heard some very pro um, choice, uh, very uh, democratic uh, senior professors, or one in fact, talk about. It should be a legislative right, not a constitutional right. Could you just explain that difference to someone like me who doesn't really know the difference? Yeah, yeah, sure. Well, I mean, well, if we're talking about a constitutional right, I mean, making it a const- recognizing it as a constitutional right means that legislation cannot be enacted that's inconsistent with that. So, you know, whether it's within the ambit of the right to privacy, which was Roe, or an alternative means was found, such as the right to equality, as as, 
um, preferred by the late great Ruth Bader Ginsburg, yeah. um, that would have protected it from from inconsistent legislation. Now, um, legislative protection um, is is well and good, but can always be altered by a subsequent uh, government. Yeah. So we saw we saw um, the Biden administration a couple of weeks ago try to enact legislation that that would effectively um, uh, entrench. Roe v. Wade into law. Um, so that was defeated in the Senate. It was clear they never mm. had the numbers. Um, so, that, I mean, that could occur. Mm. So, so you could get legislation um, that protects the right to choose. But obviously constitutional protection is much stronger because it cannot be altered subsequently by subsequent government. But it sounds like it is being altered subsequently by the court. Um, but the, the the Supreme Court is going to overturn a previous decision. I mean, how does that work? I thought it was, if it was in the Constitution, it's like mm. rock solid. You know. Well, well, the the right to privacy is not an express right; it's an implied right. Um, Just say that yeah. again. So, so, the, so the right to privacy um, mm. under the Fourteenth Amendment, which which is where the right to choose was located in Roe v. Wade, it's it's a, it's not an express right in the Constitution; it's an implied right. So um, so in Australia, we have an implied freedom of political communication that, that comes out of our system of representative and responsible government. So the right to privacy is, is similarly um, not an express right. So it's not clearly stated you have a right to privacy. It's kind of implied in the unenumerated rights type of yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. And, and the right to, to choose was found within that right to privacy. Uh, right. Okay. Now, now what Alito says in his um, in his draft uh, opinion is that for abortion to be recognised as a right, for anything to be recognised as a constitutional right, it needs to be grounded in the history and traditions of the US. Uh, right. um, and so, and and it is not. Right. So it, it, he takes a a particular view to constitutional interpretation, but that's the view that that's the originalist approach that that's taken um, in the draft majority opinion. So he's basically saying, well, that there's nothing that there's nothing in the constitution that protects this right. This needs to go to the state legislatures and be legislated on a jurisdiction by jurisdiction basis. And we know that. Um, many uh, states are minded to criminalise abortion. In fact, in fact, many have laws on their books, about 13, that will be enlivened by the overturning of Roe v Wade, if that happens, and will automatically criminalise abortion. So will that make the, the woman a criminal or, or the, the doctors or the nurses? or? Yeah, yeah it's a good question. Um, uh, there's a combination. So some will make the woman a criminal, um, some will make uh, the doctor and, and others who assist yeah. um, in the abortion um, a criminal. That's so it, it sure. is it is mind boggling. Um, it is <clears throat> and, and even if there's even if there's uncertainty, you know, we have we have different laws in different jurisdictions, but even if there's uncertainty around that, of course that deters the medical practitioners from yeah. being involved yeah. in the procedure. So, you know, clinics will close down, uh, people will be unwilling to perform the service if there's legal ambiguity yeah. because they don't want to be prosecuted. Yeah. And this has significant um, ramifications for access. Mm. So for our listeners, and we're mm. based in Australia, what's mm. the, what happens here? What happens here? Yep, if somebody wants a, a termination. Well, it, it's... Um, it's are dealt with by states and territories um, in Australia. So, so we have effectively decriminalised abortion Australia-wide, with South Australia being the last jurisdiction, um, and that was last year that it decriminalised. But there's been delay in, in um, commencing that law. So, so there is a patchwork and no um, jurisdiction has identical law. So it is a state matter. It's not dealt with by the federal government, <clears throat> except insofar as Medicare funding and PBS funding, you know, come into it. Um, so how, how does it work for us? Well, you know, we, we have, um, we've had a tendency to liberalise abortion. I mean, there, there are gestational periods after which 
um, greater checks and balances are required. But, um, but you know, and, and yeah, it's different for every jurisdiction. But we have liberalised abortion. Access um, varies. So access is is difficult in rural and regional mm. areas. Um, there are financial barriers because abortion is generally not available in the public system mm. in most jurisdictions or not available to most. Mm. So it's... Um, it's variable, but but I think that these developments in the US are really relevant to us because we've seen in the last five decades a real um, growing galvanisation of the Christian right. So, you know, the Christian right have supported political candidates. Um, they have supported Supreme Court appointments. Oh, yeah. So you get to a point where 70% of the US population um, would like to keep Roe and yet they're elected representatives um, take a different view. And and so no Republican candidate for president can um, espouse an, <clears throat> an, um, a, a pro-choice view. They, they must all declare to be, in inverted commas, pro-life, anti-choice. And so, you know, even if they don't mean it, and <laughs> many of them don't mean it, because, because of the support that comes with it, because basically they've harnessed the evangelicals. So... Um, about 26% of the population are evangelical Christians. You know, this group did not really care about abortion five decades ago. It was, it was the Catholic Church that was concerned. But this was a group to be harnessed politically. It's been harnessed and we now see the consequences. And, and we've, seen, we've seen the influence, the growing influence of the Christian right yeah. in yeah. our political system, and I think that this is something we need to, to be very cautious yeah. about and resist. Yeah. So I did look um, um, for some figures, mm. and there's uh, in the Australian New Zealand Journal of Public Health, published in 2019, mm. and it stated that one in six Australian women in their 30s have had an abortion. So that's sort of what what the public experience is, and I think you know we're combating this with education and um, availability of contraceptives and all sorts of things. But it's never fair, you know. There's language differences and religious mm. differences, and and I think uh, you know this is a very complex area, and we could talk to you about it for hours. Mm. Um, and so I'm just thinking of the listeners that might, you know, be grappling with this issue or have known somebody that has. And where do, where would, you know, I think where would we go with to talk about this? So first up is your GP. I think there's lots yes. of um, online supports where you can go and find availabilities for your decisions, counselling, maybe, you know, unwanted, unintended pregnancies. There's a whole sort of gamut of um, women facing these sorts of issues and it's... Uh, yeah, what, were you going to say something there? Yeah, I was just going to say that, that GPs and, and obviously medical practitioners are the, the people to speak to, not judgmental individuals or, you know, people um, swayed by religious views who seek to um, influence the decision of others. And there there is still a problem with um, uh, advice lines that um, are basically anti-choice and um, not providing um, impartial medical advice yeah. to do, people. Do you know, Tanya, we've got so, the 20 minutes has flown by. We've actually met at 25. We've got so much to talk to you about <laughs> and there are so many avenues. Promise us on air that you're going to come back and talk with us. I'd love to. So we've got oh, that. great. So we've, we've, got, we've got witnesses. That was so informative and we really hate great to cut summary. you short. But um, there are so many interesting and important areas to discuss. We just can't have you on the show once. So thank you so much, Dr. Tanya Penovic from... Uh, the Caston Centre um, at Monash Uni. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos, and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. We have not just one paediatrician in the <gasps> studio, we have two paediatricians in the studio, Dr. Flexible and Dr. Spock, an old friend of the show, um, are in to talk with us about all things paediatric, but just focusing on some particular areas. Now, Spock, good morning. Good morning. Um, you you actually had a sabbatical recently, didn't you? I did last year. It was uh, away for 
out of Melbourne for seven months, which was pretty amazing. And every time I opened up your Instagram page, I just turned green with envy. You just went to the most incredible locations. We, we were pretty lucky. We, we uh, got out just before a lockdown in yep. Melbourne and drove out with a rooftop tent. And so we're sort of relatively um, able to cope on our own and self-sufficient. And off we went. We, we sort of went up through the... Um, Northern Territory and WA, and so we, and we were in areas where there was no COVID and no masks and no. We had three days of lockdown in in Darwin. At one stage, there was a single case in Catherine, and apart from that, we sort of weren't sharing the pain of yeah. that Melbourne was. Yeah. Well, that was one of the reasons I was jealous, but also, I mean, the places you went to are fantastic. Mm. I'm just going to bring the voice of Dr. Flexible onto the radio, so everyone can identify her. Hello, Flexible. Hi, Dr. Mal. Nice to have you on the show. You've been on the show before, but always on the Zoom, haven't you? I know. It's so nice to be in the studio today in real life. Yeah, they're pretty salubrious digs, aren't they, Triple R? It's very nice here. Yeah. I'm very I... impressed. Oh, that's good. As we walked in, Tim Thorpe was cleaning the kitchen and his best Freddie Mercury impersonation, I've got to say. Um, you're a paediatrician as well. We will get to your segment later in the show. I'm hearing a noise in the background later in the show, but right now... I really want to hear about some of your experiences, uh, Spock. Tell us what you did on your sabbatical. Um, well, a range of things, but one of the big uh, focuses of our time was doing some work in um, Aboriginal communities in the Northern Territory and in the Kimberley. Mm-hmm. And uh, in particular, I joined a group um, called the Deadly Heart Trek. A, uh, and we we all... It's actually got that a double entendre. We... Our listeners, probably the younger listeners, because you know they're not all old like us, uh, will know that the word "deadly" means cool, you know, really cool uh, for in young folks, and certainly in, in amongst indigenous communities, they call something deadly when it's really awesome and sick. Uh, but it, yeah, and sick, yeah, yeah sick. So, sick. so it's sick and it's deadly. But it also um, refers to a deadly heart disease, rheumatic heart disease. So we were going into communities, a group of us that included. Um, echocardiographers, so people who would do ultrasounds of the heart and a cardiologist and paediatricians like me um, and educators. And we went into communities. We went, we set up in a school for a day or two and would essentially try to see every single child in that community in that day to do a paediatric health check Mm -hmm. um, and also to do an an ultrasound of their heart. Mm -hmm. And um, we picked up huge, huge amounts of um, disease, skin disease, particularly scabies and uh, group A strep skin disease in Mm. Pitaigo. And we picked up an also terrible amount of uh, rheumatic heart disease. So kids, young kids with already with um, heart valves that were affected with this condition, rheumatic heart disease. So how do they get <clears throat> rheumatic heart? How does that happen? So it's it's the predicated on an infection, group A strep, a, right. a germ that, you know, people have heard of strep sore throat. Mm-hmm. It's the, the germ that causes sore throats. It also causes skin, in, skin infections. And we have it living in our throat and on our skin, many of us. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, um, that if you have an infection with a particular strep, particular strain or strains of that germ, you can have an immune reaction in the body that effect causes inflammation in the heart and other parts of the body. So it can cause inflammation in the kidneys and cause kidney disease and inflammation in the heart and cause heart disease. And that heart disease um, is very difficult to uh, manage thereafter and, the, and people can end up with um, heart disease that requires surgery and, and there's a high mortality rate as well. And why is it so much more prevalent in some Indigenous communities? Well, you know, we had, in the 20th century, we had rheumatic heart disease throughout Australia, mm-hmm. but it's essentially been eradicated because the main drivers are poverty mm-hmm. and um, poor housing and mm-hmm. um, and and poor hygiene mm. and overcrowding. Mm. And uh, so it's, it's a combination of those factors and unfortunately also the strains of the... We don't tend to have... Even in Indigenous people in Victoria, the rates um, of rheumatic heart disease aren't as high as Indigenous people living in the Territory and mm. in WA. Um, so there's something about the strains as well. Um, but rates of rheumatic heart disease are higher in Indigenous people in Victoria. So it's there's also a racial... Um, mm predisposition. So it's also Pacific Islanders and Maori people are also uh, uh, increasingly predisposed. And what do you do once, I mean, it's one thing to diagnose that, that sort of valve, it's a valve, a disease of the valve, yeah. isn't it, of the heart yeah. valve. So it's, 
it's particularly difficult to treat, I guess. I mean, what do you do? Well, um, so the, the first thing to say is, yeah, you want to try and detect it and detect it early, yeah. but and we want to prevent it by changing all those factors that yeah. I mentioned. But once it's picked up, if a child uh, is treated with penicillin every month, certainly until they're 18 and in some instances for longer than that, mm -hmm. um, that can prevent further damage. rheumatic heart, further uh, group A strep infection and further damage mm -hmm. and can potentially prevent them ever needing any intervention with their heart, surgery to their heart and, and all the heart uh, failure and so on mm -hmm. that happens if you have valve problems. And what else did you see? Eyes and ears and... Yeah, so the, the, we certainly saw, um, as I said, there was a lot of skin infections and again, probably because of crowding and so on, mm -hmm. um, uh, scabies is a big problem and, mm. and impetigo. There also were a number of kids with discharging ears and, and middle ear disease so that um, rates of that are much higher mm -hmm. in, in Indigenous kids and with that comes problems in terms of hearing, language and learning. So there's mm -hmm. a, a high rates of problems, social problems and health problems. <clears throat> and, a hu you know, and in this terrible inequity in, in our country, that uh, there are kids living in places in our country that aren't receiving the same health care mm -hmm. and, and have so many you know, terrible social determinants as a result. Dr. Spock, Dr. Flexible here. I worked in an Indigenous community during my med school about I don't know, many, 25 years ago, and we were seeing exactly the same issues. What do you think's changed over the last 25 years? Have we made any headway? Or... Look, that's a, a great question, Flexible, and I think, um, and I actually did a previous sabbatical in the top end about um, 12, 15 years ago, and I'm afraid that I haven't seen, I, I didn't see, but this is just my perspective, a huge change during that time. Um, it seems to me that... Um, you know, successive governments have tried to sort of have tried to do something, but they've thrown money at this problem rather than actually consulting properly and um, making changes in, at a community level and helping to to drive change at a community level. Um, you know, in one of the communities I went into, one of the uh, uh, one of the teachers I was speaking to is an Indigenous guy. Um, took me around the shop, uh, the sorry, the homes, and I went into the homes and, and had a look at at some of the homes and he said look it's great that the government built all these homes but they didn't consult anyone here beforehand mm. and so they're not homes that we want they're not mm. homes that we want to live in mm. they've got all these tiny terrible rooms inside and no outdoor mm. undercover area that's what we want mm. but no one asked us and they just built these homes and and there's this happens time and time again so unfortunately i i didn't see a lot of change in the time you know through those two time periods. And it seems there's not a simple health solution. It's so multifactorial, education, social solutions. We need really big picture thinking here. Mm -hmm. And community consultation. Uh, G-Spot, you had a question. I do. Um, thank you, Dr Spock, for enlightening us on your experiences. I wanted to ask about how the communities responded to visitors like yourself coming in. I mean, it sounds like you worked with people who were already there, but would just like to hear more about their responses. Yeah, look, thanks, G-Spotter. That, that's a great question. Because, and I felt um, and continue to feel a certain disquiet about going in as, you know, for a day or two into a community. But I did go together with a group of people who had been invited. Well, we were invited as a group and we had an um, uh, Indigenous health worker with us or, uh, every, in every community we went into. We worked in conjunction with the schools. And so we actually got a, an amazingly positive response from the kids and their families. And we, we, there are many of the communities we went into, we did see 100% of the children um, in those communities because they were so... Um, you know, excited to to um, come and see us, and we also there, there was each of the communities put on a number of things like uh, footy and soccer games and uh, barbecues, and there were a lot of social events around it too to to make it into a sort of joyous occasion. So, and uh, no sepi pen here. Um, how it can it be sustained? And one question: and were the indigenous groups? Um, being trained on the field. You mentioned that there were Indigenous nurses, but what about even getting the parents involved and, you know, look at hygiene and things like that? So we, there was a, an educational arm to the to the deadly heart track and um, certainly there was a lot of work going on to try to empower parents to, to understand more about the rheumatic heart disease but about hygiene in general and 
So certainly there's a lot of work going on in that regard and empowering parents and families and people in the community is, um, is really important. There's also a really great program that's um, about to start where they're trying to train un untrained health workers to do echocardiograms. So they'll have people in communities who can uh, detect rheumatic heart disease. So there's a, a, an echocardiographer and cardiologist in Darwin who are doing fantastic... Mm. have got a fantastic program set up to try to train people to do that. Because nowadays you can just plug this tiny little uh, um, probe into your iPhone and do an uh, echocardiogram. It's Get unbelievable. Out of here. Yeah. yeah. Really cool. Oh, yeah. Really cool. Oh, yeah. Mount. Time to retrain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I imagine one day they'll have artificial intelligence that can sort of also read it as well. So. I mean, well, you know, already when, when you get an ECG, yeah. for example, it sort of tells you something. It's not always accurate, but yeah, that yeah. AI is really improving yeah. and. None of us will be needed anymore. With the, you know. I'm already obsolete. <laughs> now, Spock, can I just uh, shift gears to a totally different topic? Um, I knew you were coming onto the show, and at the same time, I'm seeing there's an increase in monkeypox mm. outbreaks. Now, you're an infectious disease uh, paediatrician. Can you tell us what monkeypox actually is? Well, it's a really old disease, actually, that yeah. um, has been uh, was first described, you know probably uh, about 80 years ago, right. and it's been predominantly a disease that occurred in Africa, and particularly in the, the Democratic Republic of Congo. Yeah. And it's, a, it's related, it's a, a virus, a, a viral disease mm. that um, is related to smallpox and mm. is in the same family as that, and distantly related to chickenpox. And, um, but it's spread, no one knows exactly how it's spread, but it's felt to be spread by rodents, um, squirrels and, and uh, other small rodents and primates, well it's called monkeypox that's because primates get it, spread by the rodents and humans get it as well right. um, and there's been a sort of a, over the years a bit of a change in the, the patterns of, of monkeypox it was confined to Africa but there were rodents who were were taken squirrels and other animals taken on ships yep. to to the UK and the US and now those rodents are there and so there are right. actually there's been there was a, a few years ago a bit of an outbreak of monkeypox um, in the states and the the cases um, uh, seem to be spread mainly by hum, animal to human transmission but there's um, virus in the pox and also in respiratory secretions and so potentially close contact. And that's perhaps what's happening in Australia because we've had a couple of cases, mm. one in Victoria, uh, one in New South Wales, and it would seem that they perhaps have, have gotten it elsewhere, but yeah. there's the p potential for transmission. Is there a vaccine for it? So the smallpox vaccine, which is still around, we all had, so we're probably yeah. not going to get monkeypox because we've had smallpox vaccine, but younger people who haven't had it uh, are susceptible. And the smallpox vaccine seems to both be able to be used to prevent it and also potentially... To, because it's an incubation, incubation period of about three weeks, you could potentially give smallpox vaccine to prevent it um, having been exposed. One of the benefits of being old, one of the few benefits yes. of being old <laughs> and having had a smallpox vaccine is it yeah. prevents against monkeypox. Now, we're going to get you to hang about um, because Dr Flexible will be talking to us about how where our attention went. Where did it go, Epi? Where did it go? Can you see it? Oh, it's uh, Yeah, well, look, yeah, you have to find it. I we can't remember. To, and bring it back. <laughs> where is it? Where is it? This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. We're saying a hello in person. Welcome to Dr. Flexible. Hello, Flexible. Hello. Are you good at yoga? Is this is why we call you Flexible? I'm just wondering. <laughs> No, not really. You can ask my kids, but yeah, it's related to my real name. Um, now you're a flexible person. You are flexible, I am. yeah. And I've learned how to pivot during the pandemic, so mm. I'm very flexible in oh, my work. Yeah, it's oh, metaphorical oh, as well as physical. Oh, yeah. so we've mentioned the pandemic. So before we changed completely yeah. on our track, I just wanted to um, have these two paediatricians, especially the ID version of a paediatrician, uh, to reassure us about monkeypox. Oh, yeah. But and and also then talk about something that we should all be worried about. Yeah, so look, we, we talked about monkeypox there, but it really is not something we need to be worried about. It's We've got... There are, there's most likely two cases in Australia, but it's generally speaking a mild disease. 
kind of like chickenpox. So um, that's not something we need to be overly worried about. What we do need to worry about really is influenza, flu. And, um, you know, we've had a couple of years where perhaps uh, all viral infections, apart from the dreaded COVID, have been uh, lower because, you know, there hasn't been crowding, everyone was home, kids weren't going to school, etc., for a period of time, so there were less viral infections. And all of a sudden we've got tons of influenza coming and I think this next few months is going to be terrible for influenza. We already have huge numbers at the children's and quite a few sick people, but children and adults alike. So we at Triple I want to tell you, go and get your flu vaccine. And not and don't pay attention to monkeypox is what you're saying? Don't, don't pay uh, big attention to monkeypox. Think about flu, go and do something about that. Yeah. And remembering when you have your flu shot, it takes two weeks to work. And you can't get the flu from the flu vaccine. No, but you get a chopper chop. You get a chopper chop, but you don't get the flu because they're dead particles. It's just impossible. So, and kids so, can go and get it at the, the pharmacies now too. Uh, oh, from can they? the age of five, you can go to your pharmacy and get yeah, it. Great yeah, stuff. Take my son today. Dr. Flexible, back to you. <laughs> We've been sidelined, but you're very flexible, as you said. Attention. Now, this is something that every parent just struggles with, with kids and, you know, phones and stuff. You know, tell us, tell us, you know, am I being overly worried about our kids and their, their sort of inability to attend to things, you know, um, focus? Dr. Mal, I think you're an over-worrier in general. You worry about a lot of things, but this okay. is actually quite important. Ah, that's legitimate. This one's legit. Good. So, you know, I recently read um, a book by Johan Hari called Stolen Attention and it really got me thinking about this issue for both myself and my teenagers but more importantly for the paediatric population and all the teens um, and young people we see because we've always had kids who present to paediatricians with inattention and what we call ADHD, so Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, with mm-hmm. inattention being one issue with that. Mm. We've you know, had children present to us for eternity, mm-hmm. but we are seeing an increase in presentations um, and people coming to us, both parents, after they've observed their kids during lockdown for two years and trying to oh, do homeschooling, yeah. yeah, yeah. they've realised, oh, my gosh, yeah. my child can really sit still and focus for yeah. about maybe three minutes. So it's become more of an issue that um, they're coming to see paediatricians, but also the environment's changing. And I really do worry for our children and their developing brains what is happening with our attention. The premise of stolen attention is it's not our fault. So there's bigger pictures at play and there are big companies and other causes that are stealing our attention away Mm. from us. Mm. Having said that, there are still really important things we, as individuals, as you know, adults, as parents and as paediatricians can do to help our children learn how to refocus, regain that ability to pay attention. Mm. And hopefully that might have an impact on you know, children's mental health. We're seeing an absolute epidemic of mental health issues mm. post-lockdown here in Melbourne. Significant increase in anxiety, depression, attentional issues, behavioural issues, and there are so many factors, but it certainly is something that I think we need to address as mm. parents. And kids' kids' brains are neuroplastic, so we have the ability to get in now and make some changes. Don't you reckon the, um, the pandemic and having kids at home just even amplified that attachment to a screen? I mean, before, we were desperately trying to get our kids, you know, off the screen and now they're being told by the school you've got to sit in front of a screen for, you know, eight hours a day and then you've got to do your homework on the screen. And then, uh, you know, it was very difficult to, to remove a screen from the bedroom because they needed it for school. Absolutely. And I think at the start of, you know, lockdown one and two in Victoria, many of us were really engaged. Mm, we were yeah. doing board games. Yeah. <laughs> we were, you know, cooking and as you were doing, making bread. Um, but as time wore on, you know, it was much harder as parents. We were trying to work hard. We were mm. trying to adapt. Our mental health was, you know, difficult for many of us. Mm. And so our kids were on screens both for their schoolwork, but then, you know, the easy thing to do was just sit and scroll and scroll. Mm. And these screens, as we know, social media, the companies are huge. Mm. It's incredibly addictive. Mm. It's not necessarily our fault that we just want to keep scrolling and scrolling. I like hearing that. Yeah, <laughs> but... Having said that, you know, now that 
you know, COVID normal hopefully is um, in play and hopefully our kids are back at school because for me that's incredibly important. I think we need to try and undo some of the habits we got into. So tell us, I mean, how do, I mean, you know, I say to my son, you know, um, can, can you put your phone down? And it's almost like me saying, I want to amputate your arm. It's just like, why? You know, it's just, you know, I, I can see, and it's not just him, it's all his friends and all the kids around. Tell me what I'm going to do to help just get some of the, the attention back into the real world to face-to-face stuff. Okay. So technology is just one aspect of it, but we'll start okay. with that. It's not just the kids who need to make changes. So role modelling as parents is incredibly important. So if we're sitting at the dinner table playing on our phones mm-hmm. or checking messages, just, oh, work's so important, I better check that, <laughs> our kids are going to say, well, you know, my messages for my friends are important. So I think we do need to role model. I think as a family, when you're trying to have dinner, which a lot of us did during lockdown, mm-hmm. that was, you know, one of the benefits, I think putting our phones away, not just on the table, not mm-hmm. in our pocket, because it's so addictive just mm-hmm. to check mm-hmm. it, Put them away. Just say half an hour, no technology time. So I think little changes like that. I think sleep is incredibly important and there is a big movement to try and improve sleep across the board, both the ability to fall asleep, what we call sleep initiation, and the ability to to stay asleep, which we call sleep maintenance. So really removing devices from the bedroom or from next to your bed where it's so tempting just to check things, check one more time. You know, you wake up overnight, you want to fall back asleep, I'll just check one more thing. Mm. You know, willpower, it's really hard to do. Mm. So one of the things we recommend for adults and for kids is removing the device completely from the bed when you're going to sleep. Mm. So, you know, Johan Hari in his book talks about locking it in a box, Mm. taking everyone's phones, iPads, computers, locking them in a box. So it's much harder to access overnight. Mm. We also know that being on a screen an hour before sleep does change your melatonin level. So that's really important. So trying, you know, go back to the old-fashioned reading a book or playing a board game before bed or just having a chat, you know, making those changes can help. I love Johan Hari. Um, ever since his was first book, I think it was Chasing the Scream about drug mm. policy in the United States and actually around the world. He talks about how, um, in that book, how it's hard for people to concentrate on books and novels because we're so used to changing our focus every five seconds. And, you know, if you're reading War and Peace, you've got to be engaged with the character for several pages to actually get some, some the nuance from it. And that's that's what's being robbed from us, I think, a lot of the time. Um, uh, Dr. G-Spot, you've got a question. I love this discussion. Thank you so much, Dr. Flexible, for raising it. And I I just wonder, I think sometimes going cold turkey from technology for young people is really challenging. And I think it kind of, um, I suppose, it um, denies the usefulness of these online communities that young people have. And I wonder if parents might be, as a first step, asking young people what they like scrolling on on their phone. And maybe that starts a dialogue between young people and parents using the technology, which then we can translate to offline ultimately. Absolutely. We're not saying technology, you know, has no place. We are in a world that our kids are using technology and predominantly for good, as we learnt during homeschooling. It's about choosing your times to be on technology and also about what technology they're using. So having that conversation, knowing what your kids are playing and engaging in what they're playing, you can actually play together. That can be great. But I think one of the important things is trying to maintain single focus, which we're not good at anymore. You know, as you said, Dr. Mal, I haven't been, I'm a reader and Mm. I have not been able to sit and read Mm. a book over the last six months very easily Mm. at all. Watching a movie, I mean, sitting there for two hours in a (laughs) theatre, you know, we're so used to Netflix and short 20, 30 minute shows that it's really hard to sit still and, and not check your phone anymore. But I think we can retrain our brains and we can try and relearn how to focus. So for kids and for ourselves as workers, I think trying to single focus is important. So when you have a task to do, trying to turn off the distractions, um, mm-hmm. you know, the email notifications, mm-hmm. the iPhone on the on the table mm-hmm. at that time. And really just set yourself realistic goals. So 
most of us can't sit for 90 minutes and, and study. When I hear about classes in school that are 90 minutes, I really do worry because our attention span, mm-hmm. you know, is not able to co- – we're not able to concentrate that for that long. So set yourself realistic goals. Work in 20, 30-minute blocks and then get up, walk around, mm-hmm. have a break. But we do know that multitasking, you know – it's a bit of a delusion. So teenagers think they can focus on six social media apps at one time. You know, in reality, it's it's not really accurate. Mm-hmm. You can only have one or two conscious thoughts at any one time. And when we're multitasking, we're actually task switching. Mm-hmm. And there's a cost to that. So it takes time to get back to what you were focusing on. I think the research shows it takes 65 seconds Every time you look away or, you know, in my open plan office, I have people coming all the time. Every time I, you know, turn away from the task that I was doing, it takes 65 seconds, Mm. you know, to get back. And throughout the day, that's hours Mm. and hours of time. So single focus for short periods of time without distraction can be really helpful. But I agree there is huge benefit in, in, you know, technology, but I think we just need to moderate it and set some boundaries around it. In the minute and a half that we've got left, could you cure this stolen? No, no. In the minute and a half, that we've got, <laughs> could you? Are there any sort of resources that parents or kids or you know I can go to, to to help me sort of figure this whole thing out, or should we just all just go out and buy Johan Hari's book? Oh, look, I you know Johan Hari's done a lot of podcasts and interviews, mm. so I think having a listen to one of those, um, reading the book, you know, on or listening to it on Audible, if that's how mm. you learn. But we do have a lot of um, resources out there. So at the Royal Children's Hospital, we have Kids Health Info mm-hmm. um, about uh, lots of issues, and attention is one of them. And we're you know I'm a I host a podcast, Kids Health Info podcast at the Royal mm-hmm. Children's Hospital, and we do have um, a, you know. A, an episode about attention and about ADHD if you want to hear about more of that. Also the Raising Children's Network. And where do you find that? So if you just on any podcast platform, the Kids Health Info podcast, um, but also on the RCH um, webpage. But also Raising Children's Network. um, There's some really good government organisations that have information about safe technology Mm -hmm. use. But I think you've got to do what's right for you. Educate yourselves as parents, have the conversations with kids, but really, really importantly... Don't blame the kids. Mm, it's mm, not their fault. Mm. It's not our fault. You know, our attention is being stolen, but it's our job as individuals to try and get it back. And then hopefully many of us can address, you know, society as a the, whole and the, the big system. The bigger issues. Thank you so much, Dr. Dr. Flexible. There is uh, so much more to talk about too. You've given us some really good tips. Hi, this is Panel Beater. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page.